All right, how we doing? <laughs> yeah, good, man. Sweet, I'm, I'm feeling good. I hope you guys are feeling, I'm feeling good. Uh, tonight's gonna be super fun. Turn to your neighbor and say, oh, man, you are glorious to behold. Can you just do that for me? You are glorious, whoa. Glory, <laughs> turn on glory, okay? Awesome. Sweet. Glory City. Glory City is the series we are in. Hey, we started this series last week, and we started this series because we as a staff have been praying for something specific, and then also we've been noticing something uh, not just within Red Rocks, although definitely within Red Rocks, um, but within kind of the city of Denver and within other churches and things like that, that there's just this... Um, kind of quiet rumble um, within our churches right now. And, um, and we started to think, well, my goodness, maybe God really is doing something. And if you were at uh, church a few weeks ago, if you were at church when Chad preached, he preached a sermon about repentance and about um, coming to the Lord and asking for holiness. And, and, uh, and it was just incredible to see people come forward and then to watch God just wash over with his holiness over people, which is not something we normally do. Um, but as we started to pray, we started to ask God, like, is this really something that you want? And then, and then it was, of course, that's something that he wants. Of course, that's something that God wants to do within our city. Of course, this is something that God is hoping to do. And um, last week, God, uh, Doug, not God, sorry, <laughs> Doug, you're cool, but... Doug got up here and he um, preached an incredible sermon about where revival begins. And the reality is, is that historically, revival always begins the same way, okay? So if you want to put on your, um, you know, historical hats for a minute, the only way that revival has ever began in a city, the only way that revival has ever began in a group of people has started with the fear of God. And you might hear that and think, well, my goodness, I don't know how to fear God if God is love. If he's the definition of love, how do you fear him, but it is this deep awe and reverence for something that is holy, for a, a person that is above us, that is beyond us, and it is a reverence to him where we, we fear him more than anything else in this world. And that's where Doug started out with, and he also talked about the very first revival that ever took place, and it was in this book, um, or it was in a city called Ephesians, and there was these seven sons um, of Sceva who had seen a man cast out a demon in Jesus' name and was like, well, that looks pretty cool. <laughs> pretty sure we can do that, right? And they set out to do something um, similar to that, and they meet a man who is demon-possessed, and they try to pray against him um, in Jesus' name. They do it just the way that the apostle did it, right? Um, and essentially, because they didn't have God with them, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit, the demon kind of looked at him and he said, well, Jesus I know and, and Paul I've heard of, but I don't know you. And then um, he told the story after this that the demon-possessed man began to beat up these seven sons. So it was one dude taking on seven dudes and it was a humiliation for them. And the entire city began to hear about this and all of a sudden it became very real that there are forces at work that are evil and that just because 
you think you're cool or you think you've got something going on does not mean that you are any match for them. And suddenly people started coming to the Lord of Lords and to the King of Kings and to Jesus Christ himself in droves. And that was the very first revival that ever took place. And we talked about the fact that all of a sudden like evil things and evil places of work began to shut down in these cities. And we thought to ourselves, my goodness, wouldn't it be amazing if this was something that happened in Denver? Wouldn't it be incredible, God, if this was something that happened here, that we began to see evil be shut down here because we asked for revival. And revivals have always started historically from this place of fear. It's been a place where uh, normally people are very frustrated with the status quo of moral decline. And they look around their world and they see what's happening and they feel a remorse and they feel a sadness and they feel a repentance and they begin to return to the Lord. And uh, historically, whether it was the Great Awakenings or the Jesus Movement or the, you know, the Wesleyan revivals, whatever they were, every single one of those revivals began with repentance, began with a fear of the, of the Lord. There was mass uh, conversions. People were getting saved. Okay, but not only that, but like all of a sudden society started to change too. And there was more morality within society. There was more social order within society. People began to care for the poor. Um, different institutions that began uh, to care for the poor sprung up. Hospitals were created. Churches were planted. At different points in time, colleges were created. I mean, it was this source of immense amount of life, which is something that every single person in here should want. And we talked about this, this fact, like this is where revival starts. It starts with a fear of God. It starts with a reverence for God. And Doug talked about that last week, about fearing the Lord. And tonight, what I think um, we're going to talk about tonight is the glory of God in a city. And, uh, but more specifically, how God brings his glory more specifically, how he brings his glory. And there's a verse that stands out to me that always kind of um, catches my eye every single time I read it in Colossians. And it, and it kind of shocks my spirit awake. And it's this. It's Colossians 1.27. And it says this. To them, and this is meaning to us. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Turn to your neighbor one more time and say, you are glorious to behold. <laughs> I titled tonight, I titled tonight, if you're taking notes, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Okay? Let's pray. God, I pray for tonight. I pray that tonight, um, God, that your glory would rest here. I pray that your presence would rest here. I pray that every single person in here would understand a little bit more of who we are in you, God, that you would show up, that you would be tangible, that, um, that not a person would leave here and not know more of who they are in you because of your salvation, God. I set myself aside. I give you the stage. Jesus, this is your show. I'm so grateful uh, for YA to be a part of it. I'm humbled, Lord. I do ask that you work tonight, God. I want to see you move. And so uh, we pray this in the sweet name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, who loves mission trips? Okay, <laughs> weirdos. No, really. Like, who loves mission trips? How, like, how, uh, really? Awesome. Okay. So I've been on a lot of mission trips and I like kept trying because I was like, well, maybe if I give it another go, I'm going to like it this time. Um, 
And here's what I realized is that God, uh, God doesn't make us all to be missionaries. And that's all right. Um, he said, Jess, you know, you are going to sacrifice for me in the city of Denver where you can still get your nails done. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Lord. And so, um, so I went on a mission trip a few years back, and it was a two-month mission trip. We went to Mozambique, which is uh, this country southernmost tip of Africa, beautiful country, beautiful people. Um, just uh, honestly, one of the most cool, it was probably one of my favorite trips that we've ever been on, but still very hard, still very, uh, you know, rural, still, still difficult on so many levels. And I struggled, like the whole time I was there, I was like, you know, like when you get up your gumption, you're like, okay, today I'm going to try really hard to be nice to people in Jesus' name. And I'd go out and I'd be like, but it's so sweaty, I'm so sweaty, you know, and so so, so I just struggled while I was there, if I'm just being honest. Um, and then I had my girlfriend who I loved, who I met on this trip, and uh, she was from another country. She was from Guatemala. Her name was Sophia, one of the coolest girls I've ever met in my entire life. And she was just full of life. And she was always expectant of God to move. And not only that, but the thing that was so cool about Sophia was that she was always expectant um, for God to move when she asked him or that she would participate with him and that he would do something. She was expectant of God to move through her. And to give you an example, we were walking one day and we were down by a beach and there was like this set of people down by the beach and they were dressed really weird. And I was like, I just asked one of our, you know, guys that was local, I was like, hey, like, what's up with them? You know, they're dressed kind of weird. They got some like little sticks and what's up that, you know? And he goes, oh, they're witch doctors. And I was like, sweet, okay. I'm gonna love them from a distance in Jesus' name. You know, and Sophia's like, oh, that is so interesting. And she walks over there. And she's like, hello. And like, she just starts talking to them and sharing the gospel with them. And I'm like, Sophia, they're cursing you right now. I can just see it. Like, they're like, why are you even hanging out with them, right? And she has no fear. She's just down there like ministering to them and their weird little skull sticks that they have. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like you're incredible, right? But this is her all the time. She was always expecting God to move. She was always ready for a miracle. For her, it was just one prayer away. And in, uh, in my world, I was like, okay, I'm going to just try to do it the best I can. One night I was like, you know what? I'm going to help my team out. I'm going to cook dinner because I'm useless otherwise, right? So, <laughs> and so I'm making dinner and they had uh, everything there was that in this particular little hut we were in, they did have gas. And so I had this little gas stove. So I was like, sweet. And I'm like, I know how to do this. And I'm like, so I like turn on the gas and I'm like, sweet. And I just like, there's a lighter. And I'm like, click, click. <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> and I burn off all my eyelashes. And I'm smelling like burnt hair and like eyelashes and I'm like, oh no, like I already like don't feel feminine, like this is terrible. And I wander to, there's this little bathroom, right? And I'm like, it's going to be fun. I just need to check it out, right? And I'm wearing like, I'm wearing this tank top and I look in the mirror and, and, and as I'm looking, I'm like, they're all gone, like they're gone. There's just nothing there. And then I see like through my tank top and on the back, I like, not only do I not have eyebrows on one side and no eyelashes, but um, I have like this skin fungus thing going on. And I literally am just like, oh, are you cursing me? Like, like as a female, like I've never felt more gross in my entire life. And we go to bed that night and I'm just like, 
be like, you know, like laying down in bed and I do the whole thing where I'm like feeling sorry for myself. And I swear to you, I just started sobbing like in bed. Like I was just, and it was the guttural, ugly cry, like, <laughs> and Sophia, ever ready to like minister, right? Is like, Jessica, Jesse, you okay? And I'm like, yes, Sophie, please just, just leave me alone, Soph. And she's like, Jesse, um, you think it's something spiritual? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, no, no, Sophie, I'm fine. Just please don't come over here, right? Like, and she's like, she she waits a minute, she waits a minute, and she goes, Jesse, you think it's a demon? <laughs> and I'm like, no, Soph, I'm good. And I like screamed it. And she goes, and she like literally like leaps on me and starts praying for me <laughs> in Jesus' name. And I'm like, Sophie, get off. I just feel ugly, you know? And, and while her method was like just maybe out there, like Sophie's heart was right on because, because she was always like, well, what can I do? Like I'm here. I have the Holy Spirit. How can, how can I be a part? She always believed that she was one prayer away from a miracle. This was her whole life. This was how she existed from the time that I knew her until the time that I got married until even now in the way that she operates today. That she's just one prayer away from a miracle that God actually wants to use her to bring glory. And I think that sometimes Sophie understands things that there's a ton of us in here we do not understand. I wanted to ask you tonight, like, do you believe truly that God wants to use you to bring glory? Not only that, but do you believe that he wants to move outside of these walls because maybe, here's the thing, maybe you're like, well, God, it's so good to come here on Thursday nights, and it's so good um, that, you know, and I get to sense your glory, and I love your glory in this place, Lord, or like, I love your glory in my quiet times where I'm, you know, I'm journaling to you, and it's just you and me, but it doesn't affect anybody else or really need to make anybody else uncomfortable, right? And do we really believe that God wants to move and wants to be a part and wants to move out of these walls? Or do we think that maybe our Christianity needs to be institutionalized, needs to remain here, needs to remain safe? Because everything that I know about Jesus is that he hopes to leak out of here. And the way that he plans to do it is through Christ in us, the hope of glory. Does God just want glory here or does he want glory city? And so uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John 11. We're going to be hanging out in John 11 the rest of tonight. This is a story most of you are probably familiar with. It's a story of Lazarus, and it says this, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness shall not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more, or he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Okay. So <clears throat> those of you who grew up in church, you know this story. Those of you who didn't, that's okay. I didn't grow up in church. And I'd be like, I don't know. That's a weird name, Lazarus. You know, um, but most of us probably know this story. It's the story where Jesus goes, and he raises a man from the dead. We read this story too quickly, and we don't understand that th this story is to give a historical count of Jesus, but it's also to speak very specifically to every believer in here, that there, every portion of Scripture is so originally written by the hand of God in order for us to be transformed through it, and this is no exception. And so the story of Lazarus isn't just the story of a man, but it's actually giving us a picture of you and of me. Shortly here, Lazarus, in a few verses, is going to pass away. He is going to die. He is going to take his last breath, and there will no longer be any life in him. And biblically, what we are told about us, what we are told, what, what God tells us about you, what he says about me before meeting Christ, is that you and I were dead prior to meeting Christ. Prior to Jesus showing up on the scene, you and I were dead on arrival. There was nothing in us that had life. There was nothing in us that was regenerative. In other words, if God were to look at you and me and say, is there anything in here that is eternal or that could be heavenly, he would find nothing. We were dead upon arrival. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Colossians 2 puts it this way, for you were dead in your sins. This is not metaphorical. This is very literal. This is not something that um, is just a story. This is what happens on the inside of you. You had a degenerative, unregenerative spirit. And this is how Jesus finds us. And some of you walked in here tonight, and maybe you knew what that was like before you met Christ, you felt dead. Or maybe you walked in here tonight, and despite everything, you did not, you do not feel alive. You raise your hands, you smile, you high-five people, but there's nothing in you right now that feels alive. And I love this because God in his perfection knows how to speak to us. And he gives us this story about this man named Lazarus so that we can easily relate to spiritually the way that we are when Jesus finds us. We are Lazarus, you and me. Jesus finds us dead on arrival. It's also a story though, not just of us, and how he finds us, but it's also a story of who Jesus is towards us in our death and who Jesus is for us in our death. Jesus hears that Lazarus has passed away and he doesn't go immediately back to Judea and scholars argue about why, and we don't have time to get into why tonight, I have some ideas, but 
He doesn't immediately go back. And then one, one day he wakes up and he looks at his disciples and he's like, all right, boys, pack up. We got to go. And all of a sudden there's this shift in focus in Jesus to Lazarus and it is laser focused. It is completely devoted and completely missional on the one that he loves And he's going after him no matter what it takes. And he says, boys, pack up. We're going back to Judea. And none of the disciples want to go. They look at him and they're like, oh, Jesus, okay. All right, you are such a good dude and you want to do good things. But here's the thing. If we go back there, there are people waiting for you. At this point in Jesus' ministry, it has gone out. Um, There is a ton of favor on his life. There is a ton of influence in his life. And because of that, people who are um, influencers, they're starting to feel threatened. All of the Pharisees, all of the Sadducees. It's gotten so bad that now they not only want to embarrass him. At first, they just wanted to embarrass him. But now they want to enslave him at least and possibly kill him if they had their way. And they say very specifically to Jesus, they say, look, dudes are waiting for stones for you. There is a a bounty on your head. (laughs) We can't go back. And I love it because Jesus looks at him and he answers them this way, John 11, 10. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks by night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to say, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. So he gives this small dissertation, and just to help you understand what he's saying here, when he says, I need to walk when there is daylight, basically what he's saying is there is a limited amount of time that my father has given me, and there are some specific things that he has given me to do, and so I have to go do them while it's still daytime. And then he says this, my friend is sick. I don't care if I'm going to get stoned. I don't care what's going to happen to me. We have to go. And Jesus wants us to understand two things in this moment. He wants us to understand, one, that he will stop at nothing to retrieve what is dead and to bring it back to life. He will stop at nothing to pluck out of darkness and bring back to life. And the second thing is this, is that he will actually, Jesus will actually always put himself in harm's way in order to make this happen. He'll stop at nothing, and he truly will put himself in harm's way in order to bring something back to life. Jesus is a mighty mighty savior and I think we get this picture of him sometimes and he has flowing hair and maybe it's blonde and he's blue-eyed and we think that he's some type of sage that most of America would agree with and that people could feel comfortable with and he is nothing like that when you meet him here in scripture he is a warrior and he is bent on saving something he lost that's who he is and he looks at Lazarus and I picture him thinking about Lazarus as, he, as he's going to meet him. And he's counting the cost as he goes. He knows exactly what's waiting for him. He knows that possibly stoning is waiting for him. And for those of you who aren't aware of stoning, they would just throw stones at you until like one hit just right and like bast your skull in. And he knows exactly what's waiting for him. He knows who wants to unshackle him. He knows that there aren't many people that um, are are going to be appreciative of him being there besides Lazarus and their family. And yet he still goes. He looks at his disciples and he says, my friend is sick. 
That's all I need to know. And so we go. He stops at nothing. And Jesus makes his trek to find Lazarus. And when he finds Lazarus, he's been dead for four days. Four days. And um, it, it's so bad at this point that Jesus gets there and he's like, well, where, where's Lazarus? And they say, well, you know, you're too late. He's already dead. And at one point he travels down to the tomb to meet him. And they say, look, Jesus, I know you have good intentions, but here's the deal. You probably shouldn't even go in there um, because he's a little ripe, if you know what I mean. Um, in fact, the King James Version said, uh, he stinketh, you know. <laughs> and they're like, Jesus, you can't go in there. He's been dead for four days. And there's a lot of conjecture about why Jesus hung back two days, but here's what I think, or one of the things I think, is that Jesus hung back for two days and allowed him to be dead for four days before he showed up, just so that we, as we read this scripture 2,000 years later, would understand that there is never anything that is too dead to be resurrected, that there's never anything in you that is too dead to be resurrected, that there's no marriage, that there's no dream, that there's no hope for holiness in your life, that you just can't seem to get going. There is never anything too dark, too dead, too far gone. It can be dead for days, and he'll still come and revive it. So Jesus meets Martha on the outskirts of her home. And he meets her, and, and, and she's like, she's so glad to see him. They're so close, these four. But she says, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here, but you're too late. Um, he's already passed away. And then they have this conversation. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, Martha. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again, Jesus, in the resurrection, in the last day. So <clears throat> this is what God is saying uh, to, to us and to her. He's saying, hey, I'm here. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to save you. I'm here to save your brother. And, and she says what a lot of us Christians do. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know there's going to be glory, and it's going to come when I get to heaven. I know that God's going to show up, and it's going to happen. And the resurrection in the last day, I know that someday we're going to get there, and everything's going to be perfect. I'm going to have a new body, and there's going to be, there ain't, there isn't going to be any mourning. There isn't going to be any crying, right? Someday, and Jesus looks at her and he says, no, 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 no. I came to do business here. And I came to do business right now. And I'm right in the middle of what you're doing. This is not for someday. And he says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Red Rocks Young Adults, do you believe this? Do you believe that there is a glory waiting for you right now? Do you believe that he wants to work in your life right now? Do you believe that the promises aren't just for heaven, but they're for right now? He is the resurrection and the life, and he makes himself available to us right now. He says, do you believe this, Martha? Because everything is contingent upon your belief. And she says, yes, Lord, yes, I do. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And so this is new. This is a new statement that Jesus is making. 
because some people at this point believed in a resurrection that was going to happen at the end of their life, right? They, this was kind of a common, um, almost pagan belief of the time. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is not going to come through, uh, you know, at the end of your life. This is not going to come through some incantation. This is not going to come through some, you know, Harry Potter spell or me praying something. This is going to come through my person, this is going to come through who I am. This is going to come through who I am as God. This is what he's saying to her. And Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1 back this up. And this is how we are revived. This is how we are given new life. And it says this, Ephesians 2, 4, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Because of what? His great love. Because of what? Because of his great love. While you were dead on arrival, he made you alive in him. Colossians 2 said this, even when you were dead in your sins and in uncircumcision of your flesh, you were made alive in Christ. Ephesians and Colossians are letting us know that you're Lazarus. You're as good as dead before you meet Christ. But the moment you meet Christ, you are made alive, not in yourself, but in him. He literally takes the death that is in you, removes it, and replaces it with himself. You are very quite literally, young adult, a new creation. Quite literally. But there are some responsibilities that come with being a resurrected person. If you are in here and you've received Jesus as your savior... This might be kind of news for you. He didn't just come to save you. He came to live in you. He didn't just come to save you from your sins and make it so that you didn't go to hell, but he actually abides in you now. And for some of you, this is all new news, or you have barely begun to comprehend it. And so there are some implications for being resurrected. And I thought we'd just talk about those for the rest of tonight as we look towards revival. And the first thing is this, is that Christ is in you. Christ is in you, young adult. And the life of Lazarus is meant to kind of give you a picture of what this looks like. Galatians 2 says this, it says, it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me. And for a lot of us, we put it on our mirrors, they're like, we're driving, and like we recite it to ourselves, but it means nothing. It means nothing because quite literally, we try to live still in ourselves. And we're waiting, and we're like, well, well, maybe someday I'll have victory in this area, or maybe someday I'll have victory in this area, and Jesus is looking at us, and he's like, Seriously? I have victory in that area. Would you just let my Holy Spirit in here? Would you just let me in? The Emancipation Proclamation happened during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln, one of the most famous presidents of all time, maybe the best president of all time, issued the Emancipation Proclamation in the middle of a war. And in this, he sent it out to all the slaves, and he, every single slave immediately and legally in front of the court of law was no longer a slave, but was free. That was the law. That was how it was. And so you went immediately as a slave from having the identity of a slave, from having the rights of a slave, from having the, the ownership of a slave, to immediately the rights of any free man. Any free man in the room 
You were equal. It was the same. You had everything they had. Your identity completely shifted in a moment. The Emancipation Proclamation goes out. But here's the deal. It took a while to get to some of the states. It traveled slowly. Not only that, but some of the slaveholders would withhold it from their slaves so that they didn't find out about it. <laughs> because they could do nothing to them at that point. They could legally do nothing to them. They had no rights over them anymore. They had no abilities over them anymore, and so they kept it from them. Some of the slaves would find out about it, and they would hear that they were free, and they would hear that they were given a brand new start at life, a, a new identity, but it was too good to be true. It was just too, it was too far-fetched, you know, that they would actually be, like, it's just been hundreds of years that they would actually be free. No, it couldn't possibly, it's too good to be true. Or a slave would hear about it, they would know it's true. But they were too afraid <laughs> to apprehend their new life. And so they stayed where they were in their slavery. And in 2016, I think this is millions of Christians within our church today that you are saved and you think, well, so thank you so much, Jesus, for saving my life. Thank you so much that I get heaven and I get glory later on. But Jesus is like, oh, my goodness, I came and I live in you now. And there's a whole slew of Christians who don't know how to apprehend this is true. They either think it's too good to be true it's too good to be true. There's no way I could be sinless the way that he's sinless. There's no way I could be good. There's no way I could be righteous the way that he is righteous. It's too good to be true. Or your life before Jesus was just too comfortable. It was just too easy to rest in. It was just too easy to, you knew it. It was familiar. You knew how the room looked in your old self. Or maybe... Satan is like, oh, but that's not really how it is. And like the slaveholders tries to keep this truth from your ears. And I wonder what would happen if a bunch of Christians in 2016 would begin to take hold of the fact that we are no longer who we were. We're no longer who we were. But we now have the, the life the regenerative, the beautiful spirit of Jesus himself living inside of us. I wonder what would happen if we started, he's looking at us and he's like, what would happen if you started to understand that the Holy Spirit actually does live in you? <laughs> what would actually happen if you, if you knew that you are only limited in the ways that you want to be? What would happen if you understood that you are no longer a slave, you are no longer a beggar, but you are a son, you are a daughter, actually, and you are a co-heir? What would happen in your life if you believed that that was true? What if we started conforming to his son instead of just regressing back to the old man, to the dead man that we were before we met him? What would it look like? Romans 8 says this, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. This is talking about Christians in here. If you have accepted Jesus as your savior, this is who he's talking to. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit lives in you and the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life in your mortal body, in your mortal 
bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This isn't when you die. This is now. This is here and now. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. And we think to ourselves, oh man, it would be so great if God would start a revival here. It would be so incredible if God would move in my school. It would be so incredible if God would heal politics. It would be so amazing if God would heal our leadership, if God would move in our country, if, if God would move at my work. And, and we pray these prayers and he's looking at us and he says, Colossians 127, friend. To them, God has chosen to make known, and he is making this known tonight among the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God is wondering tonight if revival is going to start in our country, then it needs to start in a city, like Doug talked about. And if it starts in a city, then it needs to start maybe in a church. And if it starts in a church, then it needs to start in an individual. And the way that it starts in an individual is for someone to actually say, he lives in me. What would happen if we reckon that as truth? Would we start, stop worrying about ourselves so much? Would we start stepping out more? Would we be fearless in the way that we approached other people? Would we not care so much about the way that we're treated because we know that Christ lives in us and that he's given us all things regarding life and holiness? All we need to do is approach people, tell them about Jesus, give them love. Wouldn't we be more selfless? Wouldn't we be more kind? Wouldn't we be more joyful? That we would bubble up and that people would see something in us that is different. I'll never forget there was a man um, that uh, was a neighbor of mine all growing up. I got saved when I was 18. And then he would always run into John and I over the years after that because he was friends with my parents. And um, he was an alcoholic and just had this um, just depressed state all the time. And, um, and I never, I always just really liked him, and I'd always be like, oh, hey, Joe, like, it's so good to see you, and, and I enjoyed him, he was funny, and, you know, um, I'll never forget, it was one, one time we were at a wedding together, and he just looked at John and I, and he said, what is so different about you? He said, you're happy all the time, and I was like, well, <laughs> I told him very plainly, I said, well, that's the Holy Spirit, Joe, because life is not easy, but yes, I am pretty happy pretty much all the time. What would we look like? What would a group of people look like if they comprehended that Christ lives in them? Christ lives in you, young adult. The second thing is this, is that Jesus holds nothing back in his love for you. He holds nothing back in his love for you. The story of Lazarus is a story about you and I being resurrected, being plucked out of death. But it is also a story of a God who is so in love with you that he would literally do anything he could to get to you. These are just the verses. I'm going to list out a couple of verses that go throughout uh, the story of Lazarus. It says this. It says, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, our friend. But I'm going to go wake him up. And then when Jesus ran into Mary and he sees her weeping over her brother, he weeps with her. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved, which is this troubling emotion. See how he loved him, they said. 
And listen to me, this is not the only time in scripture where Jesus makes a trek, a very difficult trek and a missional trek where he puts his life in danger and he puts his life on the line just so he can go and meet one person. This is not the only time Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee to go meet the man who is uh, possessed by a legion of demons. And he knows exactly what's waiting for him. He knows exactly who's waiting for there. He puts himself at risk so that he can go and retrieve this man. When Jesus, um, when the adulteress is thrown up, in, or not thrown up, when he's thrown in front of Jesus and everybody's waiting to stone her, it says that Jesus bent down wrote on the ground, and then he stood up. And I swear to you, every time I read that, I get a little bit emotional because he is essentially standing up and putting himself in between her and her accusers. This is what he does for us. This is what he does for us. When Hosea, the book of Hosea, God says, Hosea, you need to go and you need to marry a prostitute. And he does, and they're married for a season. And she goes and she returns to her old life. She returns to the brothels. And God says to Hosea, you need to go and you need to woo her back. You need to win her back. You go into the darkness. You go into the pit. You go into the brothels and you retrieve her. And then he says this, just like the love of the Lord. You go love her just like the way I love my people. Jesus descended into hell to take the keys because he loves you, church. He loves you and he would rid himself of himself to have you and to have me. And I think sometimes we think his love is clinical. We think that his love is like human love. We think that he's going to conform. He's going to treat us the way that we deserve to be treated or the way we think we deserve to be treated, the way we would treat ourselves, the way we would treat other people. We conform Jesus into our image. And he's looking at us tonight and he's like, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I came not just to save you but to live in you. Receive me tonight. And here's the deal, if we would begin to understand this, if we would begin to understand his love, it would transform the way that we love. We wouldn't care so much about what happens to us when we approach someone. Why? Because, oh, you're not going to hurt me. I know who I am in Christ. What can I offer you? We would, we would risk ourselves for the sake of others. We wouldn't be so easy to give up on others because he never gives up on us. If we would really understand his love, it would transform us. He stops at nothing, church. And the last thing is this. A resurrected people can resurrect a city. And this is true. <laughs> this isn't just words. Ben, you guys can come back out. A resurrected people can resurrect a city. John 11 says this. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take these grave clothes off of him and let him go. God is calling a whole bunch of us tonight who have received the good news, who know that we are saved. He is calling a whole bunch of us tonight to finally understand that you can take the grave clothes off. You don't need to act like the person you were 
two years ago. You don't need to behave like the person you were two years ago. And not because uh, you're awesome, not because you have it in you, but because the spirit of the living God now lives within you. He resurrects Lazarus. And when Lazarus takes hold of his resurrected life, when he takes hold of his new life in Jesus, and he begins to walk around, um, scripture goes on and Lazarus is webbed throughout, uh, uh, or woven throughout scripture for the next couple couple of chapters. And in the next chapter, it says this about Lazarus and about his impact within the world around him. And it says this, now the crowd that was with him, meaning Jesus, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look now, the whole world is going after him. And with that, um, I would love it if everybody would just stand tonight. A resurrected person doesn't need to be anything but resurrected to cause a commotion. A resurrected person doesn't need to do anything besides live out of their new life. This was all that Lazarus did. And as he, as he walked about the city, people were talking about him and he was kind of causing this rage and this commotion and, and things were beginning to happen. And then the Pharisees look at him and they look at Jesus and they're like, look, because of this dude, the whole world is coming to Jesus right now. And I want to live in such a way. And I think everybody in young adults and everybody in the church wants to live in such a way where we say, because of this resurrected life within me, the whole world, is coming to Jesus. The whole world can see him in me. They can see my joy. They can see my ambition. They can see that I'm not set back when other people are set back. They can see that I have something that's vivacious and alive that doesn't come from me, but that comes from him. They see it. And the whole world is coming to him. And tonight, um, there are cards under your chairs. And what I want you to do is I want you to ask for just a simple prayer. Just say, God, show me what I look like in you. God, show me what I look like in you. God, show me what Christ in me can do. And then as you write it down tonight, you can do it at any point during worship. We've got baskets up here. Just drop it in a basket. We are going to pray over you and with you that Christ in you would begin to affect your work environments. They begin to affect your families. That Christ in you um, would renew the spheres of influence that God has given you and then would renew a city that the whole world would come to Jesus because of a resurrected person. Just one resurrected person. And lastly, um, with every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're in here tonight and you walked in and you feel dead and you know you're dead and you know you have nothing and you know that um, this Christ that loves you so deeply and would stop at nothing to save you, who would sacrifice himself so that you could have what he has, that you have never heard about this God, but that tonight you would like to meet him for the first time. I would love to pray with you. And so if you are in here and you're saying, you know what, I wanna receive for the very first time the life, not just the salvation, but the life of Christ. Would you raise your hand in here nice and high, nice and high, nice and high. Amen, 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 nice and high, amen. Awesome. 
I'm going to pray for these people. God, thank you so much for everybody who got saved tonight. And God, I pray that um, they would understand that because they are proclaiming, God, that you are their Savior, because they are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is their Savior, you say that anybody that is unashamed in front of men, you will be unashamed of in front of heaven. And they not only get you in the here and now, but they get heaven forever. And then I pray for every single person in here who knows you, who uh, has been saved by you, but God, that does not know your life. I pray that tonight that they would understand that you have resurrected them, that it is no longer them that lives, but you that lives within them. God, give us all a deep revelation of this. Help us to know how much you love us. Help us to know how um, far you chase us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.